From the studios of KPCW in Park City, this is The Mountain Life, Healthy Living in the Wasatch. I'm Lynn Ware Peak, and this morning I kick off with a conversation about cheese with cheese expert, journalist, and educator Tanaya Darlington, aka Madame Fromage, who joins us to celebrate all things cheese in her new book, Madame Fromage's Adventures in Cheese How to Explore It, Pair It, and Love It From the Creamiest Breeze to the Funkiest Blues. Then, my co-host David Windsor and I talk a bit about how he's stepping back from co-hosting the show, at least for a little while. And finally, local resident, book author, and publisher Melissa Marstead will join the show to talk about how we can all find adventure, both big and small, in the new year. These guests, when we return, you're listening to The Mountain Life here on KPCW Park City. Welcome back to The Mountain Life. I'm Lynn Ware Peak. Our next guest focuses on what she calls the poetry of cheese. Tanaya Darlington is a cheese expert, a journalist, an educator, and has been blogging about cheese for a decade under the name Madame Fromage, which of course sounds much better in French than it would in English, Miss Miss Cheese. <laughs> From soft and ripened to stinky, from Oregon to Tuscany, she celebrates all things cheese. In her new book, Madame Fromage's Adventures in Cheese, How to Explore It, Pair It, and Love It, From the Creamiest Breeze to the Funkiest Blues. Tanaya, or Madame Fromage, welcome to The Mountain Life. Thank you so much. I love the name The Mountain Life because it sounds like The Cheese Mountain Life. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think in your world, everything uh, is preceded by the word cheese (laughs) or fromage, as it it were. Yes, Um, yes. Okay, this is a new word for me. A caseophile, for the first time, I heard that word from your book. Yeah, exactly. Somebody who is uh, essentially a cheese obsessive or a cheese expert. Well, in German, the word käse, even in Dutch, kaas, so the word caseophile is someone who is um, wildly interested in cheese. Okay, I love it. Yeah, I looked it up. It comes from the Latin word, and it also makes sense. What we're more associated with here in the West, it would be queso and cheese in Spanish. In your world and in this book, you introduce us to eight cheeses, but I'd like to introduce you to my world of two cheeses, one is the one that you buy on the grocery shelf. It's predictable. It's, you know, usually cheddar or something like that. The second type of cheese is the cheese that you buy from the cheesemonger at the store that's way more complex, way more expensive. I oftentimes do not dare to do it. So, okay, you know, if you could just take us through those those differences, is one right, is one wrong? I know you say they are. There's aren't. no wrong way to enjoy cheese. Yeah, the book is organized through eight styles of cheese. And my goal was really just to make the cheese life more approachable because I can remember going into a giant cheese shop for the first time and just being completely overwhelmed. That's why I often recommend if you live near a cheese shop or when you travel, seek out an independent cheese shop, talk to the person behind the counter known as a cheesemonger because they're really trained to help you 
find, you know, the cheese that you're looking for. Just as when you go into a shoe store, there's someone there to help you draw on the shoes. In a cheese shop, they're really looking to help you find a cheese that would pair with that beautiful bottle of uh, Chardonnay you got for the evening. Or maybe you're going to open a new bottle of bourbon. Or maybe you want something light and fresh. Maybe you want something for a recipe. So a cheesemonger is a casea file and a great resource. Um, so I would just say that if you're looking for really special cheeses, often you'll find those at a cheese shop. But I think in the States, one thing that's very exciting within the last decade is that grocery stores have really upped their cheese game. So you can find beautiful cheeses in many places. Yes, it seems as though here in this country, you know, I was raised on those slices of American cheese, which I don't even know if that is cheese or what what exactly it is. And most of us didn't know, and maybe you can clarify this, that cheddar cheeses, why they were dyed orange and why not left white? Yeah. Oh, that's such a good question. Well, what's interesting is that cheddar... Um, originates around or is thought to originate in, in Southern England around a gorge called Cheddar Gorge, which would have been similar like to the Grand Canyon, a, a place where people would come to see this great site. And so cheesemakers there began producing a cheese called Cheddar. And I'm told that someone wanting to distinguish themselves began adding colorant to the milk. It's annatto, which comes from a plant. So it's a, an edible plant dye. And the goal was to set the cheese apart. Also, I can tell you that cheese, cow's milk cheese made from animals on pasture has a little bit of a golden color. You might notice this in some of the cheeses at your farmer's market in the summer. And that's because most cows cannot digest beta carotene. And so it comes through the milk. So that's why you get these beautiful golden butters, golden cheeses from grass-fed cows. So another way to imitate that is to add a natto or a bit of a golden color. Interesting. So mm-hmm. all of those orange cheeses that have been colored are colored at least by something natural, this annatto. It, it is, an, yeah, it is a natural plant dye. Exactly. Well, moving on here to your experience of cheese. And as you say, I mean, you really travel all around the world. I'm speaking to you this morning. You're in Belgium, no doubt on the hunt for some wonderful tasting and smelling cheese. How did you get into this? I know it's so strange. I spent my 20s in Wisconsin working as a journalist, a food journalist, and it was the beginning of the artisan cheese movement. And I can remember that a chef called me into her kitchen and she said, Tonight, if you're writing about food, you really should pay attention to what's happening to cheese in the United States. It's getting really interesting. So that's sort of the first seed. Then I moved to Philadelphia for work and I didn't know a single person, but I really loved cheese. So my first thought was to find a local cheese shop. I did, and it blew my mind with with the selection. There are more than 350 cheeses in this little old world Italian cheese shop. And since I'm a writer and I've been a reporter, I thought, you know what? As a personal goal, I'm going to try to eat every cheese in this shop. And I decided I would start a blog about it called Madame Fromage because it was the year, you know, that was the decade of blogging. I thought I would do this for about six months, but it has just taken over my life and led to, you know, working for a company called Cheese Journeys and taking people to see the great cheesecapes of the world to being cheese director for a couple of restaurants in Philadelphia. <laughs> That's so great. <laughs> Never would have imagined. And had I stayed in Wisconsin, I probably would have just been a fairly ordinary cheese lover with a different kind of life. 
right. Uh, it was on your Instagram page, which is, it just looks like you have, I guess that's how Instagram is, is it looks like someone has a really great life. But in your case, it really is a great life. And oh, I do feel it, that. Thank you. And you celebrate all of these cheeses. And with each photo, it made me wonder where exactly in the world you were. But since you started in Wisconsin, I guess when I think of cheese in this country, I think of two states, Wisconsin okay. and Oregon. And ah, tell me more. I, nice. I don't know why. Maybe it's because of the Tillamook cheese. They got kind of okay. high distribution. But I noticed that you do cover Oregon in your book as well. And let's, let's just talk about that cheese sort of revolution here in the country. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Oregon because I think of the big cheese states as Wisconsin, Vermont, California. But Oregon is a great example of a, a state that really has this kind of fascinating cheese scene. There's a company there called Rogue Creamery. Maybe you've heard of it. It's a creamery that only makes blue cheeses, something that I love. And last year, they won the World Cheese Awards for their um, Rogue River Blue, which is an exquisite blue cheese. I was just at a huge Italian cheese festival. Not many Americans were represented, but Rogue Creamery was there. And it was such a happy moment for me to see an American cheese getting all of this attention. Oh, that's great. Okay, so... The Rogue River cheese that you talk about, or one yeah. of them is one of the eight classifications, which is blue cheese, of course, as mm. you say. Now, this one is called Negroni Blue. Which yeah, there's a cheese called a Negroni Blue, yes. Literally, and, and the, there's a whole world of infusing cheeses with other mm. flavors and herbs yeah. and things like that, but this one's infused with booze and Negroni. Yes. I'm off the top of my head. I know it has gen... I can't remember what else. Gin, Campari, and sweet vermouth. That's a, a cheese imported from Italy, and it's literally marinated. It's a blue cheese, soft blue cheese, kind of like a gorgonzola, marinated in Negroni uh, with orange slices on the top. It's one of the most arrestingly beautiful-looking cheese, kind of like a stained glass window. Wow, beautiful. Okay, so wait, that's imported from Italy, but it does that say... That one is the Rogue River Blue... It's actually wrapped in boozy oh. grape leaves, and it's a pear eau de vie that uh, marinates the rogue. Oh, the okay. I was combining yeah. them all together, but that's okay. There's a lot of booze and cheese <laughs> combining, and also just a lot of creativity in the cheese world. So let's talk about that. Why? Yeah. I mean, if oftentimes you're eating a cheese and pairing it with wine, why booze infused cheeses instead? In clash with a wine pairing. Oh, I often think that it's nice to actually pair, you know, a wine with a, a boozy cheese or even a spirit with a boozy cheese. Interestingly, there's a, a group of cheeses from Italy called ubriaco cheeses, meaning drunk. And those were cheeses that were hidden in barrels of wine because cheesemakers were taxed per wheel. And so you would hide these wheels from the tax man by dropping them into a barrel of booze. And so there's like um, these ubriaco cheeses that would be marinated in Barolo or, you know, Chianti. And, you know, it was a means of hiding the cheese, but it actually made the cheese delicious. So now it's a whole kind of classification of Italian cheeses. I love it. If you're just joining me on The Mountain Life, I'm having a conversation with Tanaya Darlington, a.k.a. Madame Fromage. It's about her new book, Adventures in Cheese, and lingering in the United States for just a bit. Tell me about how 
things have really tra transformed with cheese in the state of Wisconsin because you talk a lot about the the shall we say new cheddars from Wisconsin. Oh yeah. Um well Wisconsin's an interesting state. It's just a huge cheese producer and when I first moved to the East Coast I rarely saw this would have been 20 years ago. I rarely saw Wisconsin cheeses, but now they're really beginning to, you know, they're very prominent and there's in particular, just a lot of great cheddars. In Wisconsin, you've got cheddar makers who are aging their cheeses, sometimes for like up to 15 years. I'm talking about Hook's Creamery, which is sort of famous for the very aged cheddars. Then you've also got a guy named Willie Laner who makes a beautiful bandaged cheddar. where He literally makes cheddar in these big drums. He wraps it in cloth, smears it with lard, and sets it in his cave to age, which is another style of cheddar that's really interesting. You've got in, in the world of cheddars, essentially block cheddars, which are aged in, in like shrink wrap. And then you have these traditional cloth bound cheddars that are aged in cloth. Mm, cheddars, there's, they're wonderful. It seems as though we have evolved to enjoy, you know, as a, a market in general in this country, more sharp cheddars. Mm -hmm. and we're, we're asking maybe for more flavor out of cheeses, even the cheeses that are just in the, shall we say, the regular cheese department of the store. <laughs> it's true. I do think the American palate has evolved to like stronger cheeses. You know, you think about how there were these like Monterey, and I was growing up in, and probably you too, Monterey Jack, Colby's, these like very mild, subtle cheeses. And now I feel like people are more willing to take a chance on bolder flavors. And I think cheesemakers are really embracing that. They're putting interesting flavors into cheese, things like fermented black garlic, or um, there's a cheese out of Wisconsin that's marinated in chartreuse, which is a, an herbal liqueur. You know, things you just probably wouldn't have found 20 years ago. And I think that's really exciting. And I think that cheese is piggybacking on realms like coffee, chocolates, craft beer, these other items that Americans have begun to really become interested in. And so there's a developing passion um, on the part of, of learning about cheese in the United States that's, that's thrilling. So a lot of people enjoy whatever it is, just say, say it's a tea, for example. You know, there are teas with all kinds of floral notes mm. and all of this stuff. It's same with coffee in a way, you know, there are lot, lots of coffees with all these different flavors going on. Yeah. But a lot of people just like the flavor of whatever it is that yes. they don't want it to be masked by all these other things. Yet somehow with cheese, I feel like, I don't know, what would you say about that? Are all of these other inf infused flavors and herbs and different elements masking the flavor of cheese oh, are they such a good question yeah. flavored cheese is really controversial in the cheese world and i would say most people who say work at a nice cheese shop or even cheese makers themselves will probably tell you flavored cheese is uh, a little bit frowned upon and that is because traditionally flavors were used to mask low quality milk you can put liquid smoke into something, a provolone or a gouda, and just it flies off the shelf, but often it's maybe not a very high quality product. And I think that we're moving into an era where people are making more high quality flavored cheeses. And so you can find some really interesting things out there. And the key with the flavored cheese is you should always be able to taste the cheese. You should always be able to taste the milk. So if I'm trying a new flavored cheese, I'm always curious 
is the flavor masking the milk? That's a kind of a, a bad sign. Or can I still taste the milk? And the flavor is just adding like a little, you know, extra note. For example, there's a blue cheese I love called the Blue Jay, and it has, has juniper berries laced uh, kind of through the center. And it's just really, this really interesting enhancement to a very strong cheese where then you get this pop of juniper. I think it's fantastic. It's like having a blue cheese and a gin and tonic at the same time. But I can still really taste the cheese. And that's what I love about the Blue Jay. You talk about one of the smoked cheeses. Speaking of smoked, and I I didn't know that there was actually liquid smoke makes all kinds of sense that you would just mix into the milk. That sounds kind of gross to me, I have to yeah. say. But yeah. the cheeses that you're talking about in your book, this one river's edge up in smoke. Mm -hmm. Now there's a whole different process to that. Right. This one's from Oregon as well. Yeah, it's naturally smoked. I can't remember if it's over hickory wood or what exactly that smoked over, but there are like the really quality makers are using actual wood or sometimes like nutshells, hickory nutshells to smoke their cheeses. And then you get this just gentle, gentle kind of whiff of smoke rather than an overwhelming smoky taste. Okay. And and how about you personally? Do you yeah. enjoy the smoky cheeses? I love some of them, like Rogue River Smoky, also out of Oregon, is one of my all-time favorites. I just posted about that on Instagram because I paired it with a smoky scotch, and it was a delicious combination. You know, especially in the winter months, I like some of these smoky flavors coming through. So that's a really fun one. One of your categories is alpine cheeses. And I think yes. this is so interesting because, you know, in Switzerland and Austria, they've been doing cheese for literally millennia. And yet they are also <laughs> adding things like rose petals and marigold and lavender to their cheeses. And I feel like, you know, they have earned this, this credential as being the great cheese makers. And so when they add things, you tend to want to trust them a bit. Sure. I was, one of the reasons I love that you were, have the mountain life show is because I think of the best cheeses as really coming from the mountains, essentially like wine, where they say the higher the vine, the better the wine, same for cheese. Cheese, the higher the pasture, typically the better the cheese. Because in these alpine pastures, you get this amazing range of plant life. There's no pollution. You've got beautiful groundwater. So what the cows are eating like high in the mountains really makes for fabulous milk. And I think some of the flavored cheeses maybe you're seeing coming out of the alpine cultures that probably made for the American market, hate to say it, because oh. over here, I'm in Europe right now, people are really purists about their cheese. And I don't see much in the way of flavored alpine cheeses at all. However, in the States, there's a, a popular alpine cheese now called Alp Blossom. It comes from, I think it's from Germany, either Germany or Austria. And the cheesemaker is trying to show the eater what the cows are feeding upon. So the exterior of the cheese has herbs and flowers on it to as a nod towards what's growing in the pasture. So it's kind of a clever way to present alpine cheese and to put an emphasis on the plants. But it does, I can see that you would see that as an unusual twist on an alpine cheese. Gotcha. Now, my next question would could probably open the door to about an hour-long conversation, but I'd love to talk about the aged cheeses. A lot of people are moving away from dairy or cow's milk, products made with cow's milk, 
you know, if they have an issue in their gut with with mm -hmm. cow's milk, that if they have things like sheep's cheese and goat cheese, then those are easier on the stomach. You mm -hmm. talk a little bit about, well, my favorite cheese now, and who knows if it's thanks to Costco or what, but it's Manchego. <laughs> oh, fantastic. I had some for lunch. Oh, good, good. And so uh, that's made from sheep's cheese, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how how we receive cheese in our gut and the cheap cheap cheese and the hard the aged sure. cheese? Sure. Well, for people who are lactose sensitive, I always say the aged cheeses or, or goat or sheep's milk cheeses are easiest to digest. Even cow's milk cheeses, after around three months, the lactose breaks down and there's only just a trace amount. So the real challenge, I think, for digestion digestion is your like mozzarella, burrata, brie, young cheeses, cheeses under three years of age. Your lightest cheese and easiest cheese to digest is goat's milk cheese. That's because it's 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 low in fat, first of all. And uh, just in terms of digestibility, it's much easier on the stomach. I've been told the same thing for sheep's milk cheese. Sheep's milk cheese is high in fat. It's really lush probably notice when you have manchego, you don't want to eat a lot of it because it fills you up pretty quickly. It's high in butter fat, also great with um, spicy foods, um, with tannic red wine, so a very easy cheese to pair. Um, so those are usually my tips and tricks for if you have a little bit of a digestive, a sensitive digestion, lean on your goat, on your goat cheeses, eat aged cow's milk cheeses, and then some sheep's milk cheeses as well. What actually happens when you age a cow's milk that makes the lactose that, or yeah. what makes that element kind of decrease? That's a great question. I'm, since I'm not a scientist, I don't know if I can answer it fully for you. But what I will tell you is um, lactose is in the moisture that's in cheese, in the whey. And so if you have cheeses with a lot of moisture, like brie, mozzarella, right, you could squeeze them and you would see, you know, there's moisture in them. That's where the lactose lives. And as the cheeses age, they evaporate. And you also have enzymes that are breaking down uh, the milk. So I'm told that's what changes or what uh, that, that's why aging, the aging process breaks down the lactose. Interesting. Some cheeses even will say, I'm seeing this more and more, these are cow's milk cheeses, will even say lactose-free on the label, your aged cow's milk cheeses. Oh, okay. Well, we better talk about stinky cheeses, although this is the, scary, the scariest <laughs> type of cheese for me, but I do love to always talk about Italy. So you say the classic is Taleggio from yes. uh, Lombardy. It and you, it's funny that you liken it to it being springy, like focaccia, which is bread in Italy. Yeah, that is one of my all-time favorite cheeses. Yeah, stinky cheeses are an interesting category all of their own, and there's a real range. Generally, these are cheeses that are a little bit squishy, and they have a, a kind of damp orangish rind. Uh, if it's kind of a, a pinkish orange, like Taleggio, it's usually not too strong. If it's fiery orange, like a poisse from France, from Burgundy, it's a very strong cheese. So the, the rind actually tells you how strong uh, the cheese will taste. These are a cool collection of cheeses developed by monks who traditionally were making cheese and then also making beer or wine. And one of them figured out that if you 
you know, put a little bit of beer or wine onto the cheese. It, it created this funky flavor and also this orange bacteria to grow on the rind. I love stinky cheeses. I know they're not for everyone, but I think that they're a great, something meatless to put out for guests. And so uh, for, for me, I often have like a little bit of a funky cheese, you know, out on a Monday night, if I'm doing a meatless Monday or if I'm having vegetarian friends over, I'll put out a funky cheese. Yes. Speaking of the rind, I think people have heard that, oh, it's okay to, to eat the rind of any cheese, but it is, like you say, a bacteria that grows on, on the cheese. So do we eat it? Do we not eat it? They call it a friendly microbial carpet. Uh, <laughs> I always say if it appeals to you, eat it. If it doesn't appeal to you, don't eat it. So if it looks like shoe leather, if it's got wax on it, peel it off. But if you're at a, a cheese party of Casey Falls, usually there's hardly a crumb left over, right? Um, and a lot of the rinds, like the exterior of a baguette, are really part of the cheese. And the intention on the part of the cheesemaker is that you'll eat it. All right, final question here. I'm going to put you on the spot. You know, say I'm going to a a party and I'm taking this charcuterie board and I am going to be adventurous. I'm going to the cheesemonger at the grocery store and we don't have a, a specific cheese store here in this town, but we do have a cheesemonger uh, at the grocery store. I want to be adventurous. I want okay. to purchase three, just okay. three cheeses. What are they? Sounds good. Well, right now you are in like an amazing cheese season because it's winter, it's the holidays. And so most cheese shops are really well stocked. And there is a coveted cheese that's available in the United States right now that would be an absolute must. It's called Rush Creek Reserve. It's a funky little cheese wrapped in a belt made of bark, spruce bark. It's based on a French and Swiss style of cheese. It's only available this time of year in Europe. So Rush Creek Reserve would be my first choice for you. And that's a cheese that's really soft and gooey inside. You just peel back the top of the rind and you can dip in celery sticks, potato chips, bread, things like that. My next suggestion for you would probably be a robiola because I, I, I sense that you like, some, you like Italian cheeses. And a robiola cheese is typically a mixed milk cheese. I love one called tre latte, which is goat, cow, and sheep together. This is a soft cheese, really spreadable, delicious, comes from Piedmont, um, where you have also Barolo wine. So you can open a nice bottle of red wine with your Robiola. And then as your last cheese, one of my favorites around the holidays is Colton Bassett Stilton. It's a blue cheese from England, but a nutty, woodsy tastes. It's great also with dark chocolate and a little bit of port. I think those three, Rush Creek Reserve, Robiola, and Colston Bassett Stilton would be a beautiful, adventurous cheese plate. Well, you have armed me and all of our listeners with some knowledge and a little bit of sense of adventure. So Tanaya Darlington, cheese expert, journalist, and educator. It's in, all in her new book, Adventures in Cheese. And you can look her up on Instagram. Her page is Madame Fromage, but it's abbreviated, right? Yeah, at MME Fromage. MME is short for Madame. Tanaya, thank you so much for joining me on The Mountain Live. Thank you so much. It was a real treat. Welcome back to The Mountain Life. I'm Lynn Ware Peak. Okay, well, The Mountain Life has been one of the greatest joys of my life for about, mm, I think we're going on our 13th year now. We have been doing this show about health, nutrition, fitness, and lifestyle in general every Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. I've had a couple of 
great co-hosts and David Windsor has been just a wonderful person to co-host the show with. The thing that I can say about you, David, is that you have a curiosity that helps you, I think, articulate really thoughtful questions because they're questions that come, you know, from your heart and from your own sense of curiosity. So I really thank you for being my co-host. And as they say, ask, you want to get something done, ask a busy person. I think that's how the saying goes. And you're very busy. And uh, we are looking at you having a bit of a hiatus from the mountain life. So maybe talk to our listeners about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, so first of all, Lynn, when you when you reached out to me for this opportunity to be your co-host, it was a real honor because I've listened to the show for 10 plus years. And this has always been uh, a passion of mine, just speaking and being intrigued, like you said, and curious about topics and being able to speak to these individuals that we get to talk to on a weekly basis has been a real honor and real exciting moment for me. And as you said, I'm, I'm extremely busy in my construction business, and I've started a coaching business for contractors as well. And it's, it's all kind of taking off. And so finding the time for the mountain life has been a challenge, but we're Lynn and I together seeking ways to make it happen. And for the time being, it, my schedule is just a little packed. And for now, there'll be kind of just a stepping away of the show for a little bit until we can find that time in my schedule. It's that wearing many hats, as many people do in Park City, and you're definitely no exception to that. A man of many talents. A man of many interests, we'll say. Well, it is, it's been great having you again, and um, we'll, we'll be hearing from you now and again and hopefully more frequently in the future, but just want to give you a big thanks for the last year and a half that you've been co-hosting with me. Well, big thanks to you, Lynn, as well, and you know, a big thanks to the community. I've, I've really enjoyed meeting people in the grocery store and seeing people out in town and saying that they listen to the show and it it's been it's been a fun journey and having people hear our interviews and say that it was it was a job well done so thanks to you and park city yeah thank you david thanks lynn david windsor born and bred here in park city what a great person and co-host and hopefully we'll get him back but in the meantime we the show will go on as they say. And we'll be back after these words from our underwriters with Melissa Marstead, who brings us a really interesting oh, conversation about everyday adventures. They don't have to be extreme. They just have to be adventures. How can we find that in the new year when we return? Welcome back to The Mountain Life. I'm Lynn Ware Peak, And I'm David Windsor. Well, it's the new year, and that means new beginnings. While locals are accustomed to hearing about World Cup podium finishers, first ascents and descents, and mega athletes doing unimaginable feats, let's shift to our own sense of adventure, no matter how big or small. Our next guest, local resident Melissa Marstead, wants to help you choose an adventure a month for 2024. Melissa is a children's book author, founder of a publishing company, a freelance writer, and an adventurer. While her adventures may not be everyday adventures, hearing her talk might inspire us all to create our own for 2024. Melissa Marstead, welcome to The Mountain Life. Thank you for having me. Well, I hope I got that right, that um, kind of what you have done is gone throughout 
the country, the world, and, and even locally. And you have sought out things that will make you feel like you're really, you know, seizing the day, shall we say. Exactly. I think it comes um, around to my children's book writing and maybe starts early in my childhood, but I would say um, seeking just everyday adventures really came to fruition when I turned 50 in 2015 and both my boys were off at college. You know, I was fine being here in Park City during the week, but on the weekends, um, I just needed something to do. And that's when I would get on the road. So your sense of adventure was, it did begin before you were 50. I mean, as a kid, you were big into sort of those those things that we used to do before <laughs> there was so much parent oversight, right? And it seems like that's where it started for you. Describe yourself as a kid. Oh, I had no parent oversight. They, My mom just wanted us out of the house. So I lived at the end of a dead-end street and actually was really lucky to have a neighbor next door. And we would just explore. I mean, we would just go in the woods and walk and walk and walk. And we would pick raspberries in the summer. We would have a little lemonade stand. Uh, in the winter, we would find these tiny little ponds and skate. You know, by the time I was seven or eight, my parents are still in the same house since 1969. So I can go back and find the paths to the forts we built. So let's touch on fear for a second because you've done so many things. You've you've hiked all these peaks, you've run marathons in Machu Picchu, you've you've run 12 marathons, you've hiked all these peaks, you've seen 46 state parks. And so what about it in this adventure because I'm sure along the way you have you've confronted fear. So what is it with you along your journey that you just lean into that fear and how do you combat that? Well, I think that definitely goes back to my mom has been sick my entire life. Uh, I really can't remember a moment. She's had two primary cancers. She's had blockages in her intestines. She's had a head-on car accident, you know, broke this bone, broke that bone. She's had sepsis twice. And I mean, she's been in a wheelchair pretty much since she... Um, ruptured her, what is it called? A spontaneous rupture of her sacrum in January, 2020. My dad will actually say, when I did Buckskin Gulch, for example, which is like if people, it's very, very doable. I guess slot with the longest slot canyon, definitely in Utah. My dad says, why do you do these things? And I say, because I can, and I'd rather do it than living my life in a wheelchair like my mom does, unfortunately. Well, as you know, many of us have aging parents, we see, we see that we see the their health faltering, and we're thankful for our own health. And as we age, you know, our joints aren't working maybe like they used to when we were in our 20s. And so it really is a time. It's like a turning point, a time that you make a decision about how your life is going to go and what you're going to do. I feel like some of us just lack maybe creativity or spontaneity or, you know, we hear about these incredible ultra marathons that people do or point to point mountain bike race or the Wasatch 100. And we go, well, that's not I could never do that. But what can I do? And we maybe just don't have creativity about it. What would you say to that? 
Well, so my dog is two and a half years old and I feel like she has definitely been the one to inspire my adventures. For example, twice in the month of December, I just knew I want, so for example, Fisher's Tower outside of, it's 20 miles outside of Moab is one of my all time favorite hikes. And I've done the loop before where there's a ladder and I would never take her alone in the ladder because I just don't know how I could do it. So I've just gone, I just think it's one of the most beautiful places in Utah. And I went down there by myself a few weeks ago, got down there pretty late. So we only had time for about 30 minutes out, 30 minutes back, but we got there at sunset and just getting there at that perfect moment in time. And I think we did two miles and I was, I, I'm, I, I'm feeling the chills on my shoulders right now because it was so magical. And I had such an amazing experience that I took my older son down who happens to have a, a nine month old puppy and he doesn't push him as you know very hard and can only do about an hour hike with his puppy. And even though I had done it two weeks before, I wanted to experience it with my son. So we, you know, the two, and there's literally no one there. It was just amazing. Yeah, so that would be an everyday adventure that a lot of people could do. You know, a lot of people people can walk two miles, even if they don't consider themselves real athletes. You make some suggestions in an article that you recently wrote. And, you know, one is to go to, I think, the highest point on Antelope Island in the in the Salt Great Salt Lake. I have lived in Park City for uh, 35 years plus. I've never done that. And so talk about how you're kind of choosing what might be adventures that are good for people that are scalable. Oh, I, I happen to love Antelope Island. Um, it's usually drier than many places. And, you know, say from Park City, it's an hour drive. I'm also a huge advocate for the state parks because they allow dogs. Their state park pass a little pricey at $125, but, and it is annual. So for people to know, they now, it starts in January and runs the calendar year. So Prairie Peak, it's actually, I'd say more moderate. Uh, it's six miles round trip, a little bit of scramble at the top. And on the way down, when I went and did it with a friend of mine, I let, I keep Clover, my dog on a leash because she chases squirrels. She chases any rodent she sees. So I did let go of the leash um, as I was just trying to maneuver around a little tough corner. She took off, she did, you know, 10 or 15 minutes later, she was back. But that was, you know, little things I have to adjust to when I'm doing my hikes or runs. But I think with Antelope Island, you know, you're always gonna see a bison. I don't think I've ever been there when you haven't seen a bison. And there's really manageable hikes and runs and biking out there. Um, and so for a state park, within an hour, we're just so lucky because I go to Rock Creek at Jordanelle pretty regularly. And from Park City, you know, to go out to Camas, turn right, you know, you go through Francis in the backside. I love Rock Creek because it's so quiet and pristine and just, 
Um, it's amazing to look back at Deer Valley and you can choose, you know, do you want to go out 30 minutes, 45 minutes? And um, I just like to look for places where it's more quiet. <laughs> Melissa, I, what's really resonating me, with me with you is the fact that you're seeing the beauty in the simplest things. Because I've been to Rock Creek a lot myself and I've never really explored it. It's just kind of been passing through the drive. But yes, I've seen the beauty in it. But you can tell that you really have a passion for this and, and like going to Moab and, and being there for that sunset at that perfect time in in your existence and what about these adventures really calls to you one and two do you think that taking these adventures by yourself is a big component to to feeling that 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 internal thing that you're you're, you're getting out of this beauty um i think i seek that um i've had you know trials and tribulations in my life and i need an hour at least a day in nature. It's the only way when my body will um, decompress, I guess. And I've just found in hours about when I start to not have kind of daily anxiety. And so two hours is the best. Um, it's just for some reason, I have these the, those vibrations and it's funny when I go out in nature, it's just will calm my soul. That's beautiful. So your son's bought you for Christmas, a pair of snowshoes and in anticipating a 10 or 15 Bigfoot snowshoe race. I've never heard of this. What is the Bigfoot snowshoe race? Oh, it's at Wasatch uh, Mountain State Park and where I also love to go. I mean, there's so many different elements. Um, you probably know the WOW Trail, um, which is, you can, um, I do that quite a bit where you park at the uh, up and over guardsmen, but even now, if you go to Wasatch State Park and park at the bottom, you can do the WOW Trail. You can go to um, their parking lot and there's so many different, so I'm not, I am in touch with the park rangers and Soldier Hollow, and it appears it's going to be a go, but you know, we've all been watching the snow. Um, so, and I haven't quite decided if I want to sign up for the 10K or 15. I know I can do the 10K, the 15K would be a push. And um, there was one time when I first moved to Park City there was a snowshoe race and I'd never put on snowshoes before. And I just tromped through this. It was over on the backside around the alley. And uh, I figured I did it then. I'll just try it again. Yeah, going 15 kilometers on snowshoes, <clears throat> going one kilometer on snowshoes yeah. seems to be, yeah. Um, yeah, pretty challenging. So going back to what you said about, you know, decompressing and sort of staving off, things like anxiety or depression or ADD. I mean, you know, exercise and being outside is the panacea to like most things that, you know, Alzheimer's, all these things, we, you know, we hear it over and over. It's exercise and it helps, you know, it's exercise and being outside that helps not only our physical state, but our emotional state. And yet we don't, 
you know, we a lot of times we don't do it. And so I'm wondering what you tell yourself when you say, you know, I have got I've got to get out here. There's there's really no option. How do you, how do you get out the door when you don't want to? Well, I am, I guess, pretty lucky to say that, um, you know, sports has always been in my life. Um, where I grew up, I grew up on the backside of a really dinky ski area called Sundown. I think it's 600 feet. Um, my parents were always like, just go outside. We were always just, um, I grew up swimming and I think it just became a habit. So, and now, I mean, so when COVID hit and a lot of people were getting out in nature or being isolated, um, I don't know, I just felt really lucky that I had already built that habit. And I guess it got reinforced even more during the last four years. And with seeing my mom's decline, that's also in my head is that I just don't want to live or or not miss out on things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't want what are, what are my parents missing out? My dad uh, retired two weeks ago and a week later they moved into an assisted living. So um, that's not my life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, we recently interviewed a couple who are, were the the um, founders and race directors for this crazy race up in the Wind River Mountains in Wyoming called the Drift, and it's in the middle of the winter, and people go a hundred miles, and it takes them, you know, they have to sleep out where it's you know below zero at night, and um, and again, you know, most of us would say, oh, I could never do that. And yet they have these shorter distances. You know, there's one that's 13 miles and you can ski, bike, snowshoe to do that. And so talking about scale and how we approach these types of things is, is really what you have mastered, I think. Like you're, you're very athletic and so you're able to do marathons and ultra marathons. But what you're doing is scaling it to just get people out there. And so what is your hope for people in 2024? Well, you know, especially here in Utah and Park City, I highly recommend a state park pass. I, you know, have the brochure for the state parks and have been checking them off. And I saw, I mean, nobody has heard of Croydon. Have you guys ever heard of Croydon, Utah? And there's a new, um, uh, I don't know how it works at the government level, but they've designated Lost Creek State Park. And I saw it on the map just December. So my younger son and I drove out there and there are no trails. There's just a road. So we drove through the state park and parked the car and then just took our dogs on a walk. I mean, it's literally I don't know, maybe 40 minutes. Um, and it's only an hour away. It's, I think it's Morgan County. Um, so I did that. And then when I was down in Moab with my older son, there's also a new state park outside of Moab called Utah Raptor State Park. And it's um, as you're heading out of town. And so I said to my son, you know, I need to check this one off. And again, there's nothing there. All we did is maybe walk the dogs 15 minutes. And I checked it off my box. 
So those are two more that I've checked off, but I've tried to um, reach all the state parks just because they're good with dogs. I've been a Utah resident my whole life and this 20 minutes has really educated me on how little I know about this state and all the parks and adventures that you can get into. Melissa, I want to talk about Lucky Penny Publications and these wildlife adventures that you're writing about and uh, what what what's the inspiration behind this and what are what are these books and who are they for? So back in 2015, two of my longtime running partners um, had been doing ultras and they convinced me to do my first one in October of 2015 on the Oregon coast. And um, it was a terrifying experience because it was stormy, rainy. Uh, and then lo and behold, one month later, I just, I signed up for Antelope Island 50K in November of 2015, two months after I had turned 50. And you know, when you do ultras, I run hike, you know, it's not, I don't run it for a fast time. I run it to look at the scenery. And so when you're out there six, five, six, seven hours by yourself, um, I came up with the, I, I knew that the National Park Service was turning a hundred in 2016. So I came up with the idea to write my first children's book about Utah's mighty five, the five national parks. So, um, Within five months, I had found an illustrator and with Lucky Penny, I had set up my own publishing company. So by, it's actually interesting, May of 2016, I was back in Moab um, selling my book, getting on the road. And then one book led to another in 2016, I did California's national parks and um, this, the last six months of 2023, I finished a book about Utah's dark skies. Um, I've just been really fascinated that Utah, there are 200 international dark sky parks in the world and Utah has more than 20 and many of them happen to be state parks. So I got on the road this fall, taking my book to these state parks and something interesting that we did with this book, we could change the cover to match. So for Antelope Island, we changed the cover for the illustration that was in the book. For Goblin Valley, we changed the cover. So uh, it helped with book sales more than any other book that I've done so far. Um, but it's called Ole's Dark Sky Journey. And that was number 10 in our series of children's books. Melissa Marstead is our guest. She's a children's book author, a freelance writer. She founded a publishing company and she's both an everyday adventurer and oh, just a good all around adventurer. Melissa, this has been really inspirational. I hope our listeners take what you have said here and choose their own adventures so especially with the state parks wow what an inspiration thank you so much for joining us on the mountain life it's really great thank you for having me and thanks for tuning in to kpcw radio here in park city stay safe out there on the roads snow blowing in another storm here in a few minutes